As many of y'all know, I am going to be gone this summer on a sabbatical thanks to a grant from the Lilly Foundation. And uh, June 14th, Therese, myself, and Sam get on a plane. We head for the Holy Land. First time I've ever been there. Uh, looking forward to that. Then we're going to uh, spend some time in Europe visiting some missionaries and uh, doing some church history stuff. Probably see the Alps, too, that kind of thing. Uh, then we're going to come home, and I'm going to spend some time seeing some people who have impacted me huge spiritually. Um, Got several prayer retreats locked in. And so just really, really looking forward to this. Now, one of the ways you can join me is I'm reading a book, The Rest of God. I've read this a couple of different times already. I encourage you to read it. Matter of fact, you can pick up a copy at the information desk. We have a few left. And I'm going to be commenting on this throughout the summer on my blog. Reading schedule is, is at the info desk if you've already got the book. So that will be a, a great thing. Now, I'm shutting down texting, email, all that sort of stuff, but I will be blogging. And so you can uh, get on my blog, follow that. I'll be, once we get on the plane, I'll probably be adding to it every couple of days. So you can see if we've been killed or whatever else. It will be, it will be interesting. Looking forward to that. Um, now, while I'm gone, just so you know, Herb Gilroy, our executive director of operations, will kind of be running the show here. He's in charge of the staff and the facility. He really is anyway. But just so you know, any issues you have, call Herb, right? Um, Mike will be assisting them, Pastor Mike. And Pastor Mike is over Sunday morning, all things Sunday morning. So they'll be doing that. Uh, very competent staff God has given us. So that will be, that will be very, um, good. Looking forward to what transpires. Now, when I was at Moody, one of the things that we did, uh, they did at Moody, every year they have something called Founders Week. And Founders Week, they bring in all these speakers. And so back in my era, when I, Founders Week, you might have Chuck Swindoll in the morning and John MacArthur in the afternoon. And then you come back and there's Josh McDowell. I mean, you know, we just had, every, it was just fantastic. We were just being filled up huge. That's kind of the way the summer's going to be here at FAC. Because we got our team here, but then also we've got three different professors from Grove City College starting next week. Dr. Salugi Bayan, he's the chair of the Department of Theology. He will be here. We've got uh, my kid brother is going to be here for one of the weeks. Who knows how that's going to go? I'm glad I'm not going to be here for that one. Uh, Al Detter's going to be here a week. Some of you know Al. Uh, Bob Thomas, he's a good friend of mine. He pastors in Butler. He'll be here. Randy Elliott. It's just going to be an excellent, excellent summer. You're going to want to, if you're here, your heart is to grow. It's going to happen because God's word is going to come fast and furious and, and gentle too. So, you want to be here for that. Now, what we're doing uh, today is we're finishing up finally, right, our John 17 series. We started this uh, weeks ago, and then it kind of got interrupted with Mother's Day and Fire Away and Senior Sunday. But we're finishing that off today. Just by word of reminder, John 17, I think most unique chapter in the Bible. It's the very, very end of the Last Supper. Okay, that whole deal. Now, when this Last Supper started, you know, a few hours before John 17, probably, you know, chapter 13, uh, the, the apostles, when they go into that upper room, man, they are pumped. I mean, they are just excited. Jesus had told them that when his kingdom comes, they will reign with him, sitting on 12 thrones, judging Israel. 
And so then Jesus forms this parade and he right through Jerusalem and everybody is, oh, you know, Jesus, Jesus. And they're there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Blessed is the son of David. Well, those are all heavy, messianic, very political, overtoned words. And so his disciples, apostles are thinking, this is it. You know, we're going to take on Rome any day. It's going to be fantastic. They walk into the upper room and they are pumped and ready for what's next. But then Jesus kind of goes AWOL on them, right? He, he says, you know what, you guys, you, 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 you're, you're with me. That's good. But you're misunderstanding some stuff about the kingdom. You need to know I'm leaving you tonight. And then, wait, wait, what do you mean you're leaving? Yeah, no, I'm leaving, and I'll come back one day, but I'm leaving. It's going to be a lot. You can't come with me, and I'm leaving you by alone, but not really alone. I'm kind of going to send you the Holy Spirit. And we like the Holy Spirit and all, but we want you, Jesus. What are you doing? And then he gets a little bit worse. He says, now, not only that, but one of you in this room is going to betray me, and one of you in this room is going to deny that you even know me, and every one of y'all will abandon me. And of course, they're vehement. That's not, not me. Everyone else, not me. And, and I don't know if they're thinking Jesus is having an ER moment or what, but so they're getting ready to leave and they're going to Gethsemane. And we know what happens at Gethsemane. But, but just as they get ready to go out the door, Jesus stops for a word of prayer. Now, this is not a corporate word of prayer. Let's all hold hands and pray. No, just Jesus and his father. But he pr- does something unique here. He prays out loud in their presence, and this is why I think, because he knows that what these guys are going to go through in the next few hours, pretty tumultuous. He, he knows that the, 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 the enti- his entire plan is resting on these guys, on his, his church. And he knows that these guys need to hear what's in this prayer if they're going to make it. He knows that we need to hear what's in this prayer if we're going to make it. Heavy discipleship stuff. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you'll open with me, John 17, we're going to start right at at verse uh, 20. John 17, verse 20. It says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, to think about this for a minute. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying directly for his original apostles. Now, it's got obvious application for us, clearly, but really for those guys. But here he shifts. He kind of pushes those guys aside and says, okay, I'm done praying for them. Now, who do I want to pray with? Uh, for? I want to pray for all of those who will believe in me through the words of these guys. And you need to know that the guys in that room, Matthew, wrote the book of Matthew, Peter, the book of Mark is really Peter's memoirs, John, Apostle John, Luke, he's not in that room, but he's going to interview every one of those guys to write his gospel. If you and I were to trace back our spiritual lineage, every single one of us would stop Right there at those guys, the gospel as written. He's praying for us. I've, I've often wondered this, and I, I think it's true, can't prove it, but I think it's true. I wondered if Jesus, as he prayed this, if my picture flashed in his mind, somehow he's God, right? 
I don't just think that's a nice thought. I think that's true. That Jesus, the night he was betrayed, as he was going to Gethsemane, he prayed for me personally. He prayed for you personally. That's huge. Now, Jesus is going to pray for us. I'm guessing it's not random stuff he's praying for. Uh, let me pray for this and uh, that and, oh yeah, pray for that. I'm guessing it's pretty intentional what he's praying for. So what's he pray for for us? He says, pray for these guys that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be in us. And it comes back at verse 22, same thing. It says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. Praise for unity. Now, this is interesting. He prays three things in this prayer for his followers. He prays for protection. Praise verse 17 for sanctification. And then here he prays for unity. Every one of these three things, you've got several aspects. You've got an answer. I don't know if we'd want to say Jesus' prayers were not answered. We've got an answer. We have our part, and then we're going to have future complete fulfillment. For example, the protection. Now, these guys had just saw one of their own, Judas Iscariot, crash and burn. They saw Satan enter into him. He lost. He's going to lose it huge. And so they're going to be wondering, when they abandon and run, is this the same thing that happened to us that happened to Judas? What's going on? And so it's going to be comforting to hear Jesus pray, would you protect these guys? Would you keep them from the evil one? This is all about eternal security. And so their they're salvation, they're locked. It's set. There's no way you, they can lose it. But yet, reality is in this life, Peter it's going to remind them that we should be sober and vigilant because we got an adversary, the devil, who roams about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's written to Christians. Peter knows this very well. Paul says, you better put on your armor because Satan's coming at you. We got a battle. We're going to have to fight. Now, when we get to heaven, we leave the armor aside. There's no Satan. It's, 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 it's complete. It's fulfilled. But kind of you got this yes, and, and, and it needs to be total fulfilled later. Sanctification. We're, we're sanctified. That means we came to know God the Father, and Jesus says, Father, would you help them be more like you? Would you help them grow in this? He says, verse 17, sanctify them through your through the truth. Your word is truth. And so here's a great doctrine. I wish we had time to go on this one. But in heaven, we are considered perfect in God's eyes. When he looks at us, he does not see our sin. Our sin is washed away. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Positionally, you are perfected. Practically speaking, in this life, as we spend time in God's word, he grows us. One day we're going to be practically perfected as well. And this third thing, unity. Now, there's a sense in which we are placed in his body that the unity is real. There's a sense that we need to work on it. And there's a sense when we get to heaven one day, it is complete. When you see this word unity, you can think of the word community because that's kind of what he's talking about. Now, what is, let's stop and, and ask yourself what unity is or maybe what isn't it. This is, this is huge because you get people look at this text and they think this, they think, Jesus' prayer obviously wasn't answered. 
Church has messed this up so huge. We're not unified in any way, shape, or form that even God can't deal with us. You know, that's how bad it is. There's a couple... What unity is not? Unity is not organizational. Jesus is not talking about, well, you got different denominations. I guess that oh, this whole thing was blown. That's, he's not looking at an org chart here. He's not wanting that everything has to be that way. He's not talking about positionally. And I've heard people say this. Well, positionally, we are one. But down here, we're a mess. But positionally, we are one. We're going to see this unity can be observed. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about uniformity. In other words, we all have to look cookie cutter, you know, exactly the same. Every church has the same liturgy and the same Bible version and the same songs and the same prayers. And he's not talking about uniformity. He's not talking upon agreement to externals. I got a great way to solve this unity issue. Everybody agree with me. See, if we all just agree with me, (laughs) it's going to be fine, right? It'll be fine. That's not what he's talking about. In Acts 15, if you, you know Acts 15, remember this, uh, Barnabas and the Apostle Paul, first church's missionaries, and they're going everywhere together. But in Acts 15, they have a fight. They have, scripture says they, wrote, they, they raise their voices to each other. And so Barnabas, the philosophy of ministry, takes off with John Mark. It's a staff issue. It's always a staff issue, right? Takes off with John Mark. And Paul takes Silas and goes a different direction. Well, did they violate Jesus' prayer here? No, not at all. We need to understand what does Jesus refer to when he refers to unity. And let me throw a couple things at you here. First of all, we see this unity is dependent on our being in Christ. You see this? It's personal unity. He says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they be in us. And this kind of language, you're going, why is he talking? What what he's referring to is a unity that comes when people die to themselves, uh, bow on their knees, submission to Christ, when they abide in Christ, when they're in Christ. Now, can you imagine two folk who doesn't, doesn't matter their background or history, they get on their knees before Christ and submit their life to Christ. That's the unity he's referring to. When he talks about this unity, he's, 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 he's juxtaposing it, isn't it? Isn't he? With the type of relationship Jesus has with the Father. May the kind of relationship we have be the kind of relationship that they have. What kind of relationship does the Father and the Son have? Well, right in verse 2, right, you've got Jesus saying, Father, glorify me so that I can glorify you. I want you to be exalted. I'm not interested in me being exalted. I want you exalted. This text and many others talks about how the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And so the Trinity, you've got this this deep, pure love, not self-exalting, but exalting of the other. And Jesus is saying, may that type of relationship that we have, that's selfless, pure love, May that be the kind of relationship they have. So that's, that's, it, it does not, this unity does not do away with distinctives. Jesus and the Father are one, and yet they're different. 
right? The Father sent the Son. Jesus is praying to the Father. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. They're distinct. They're, they're separate. You really see this in 1 Corinthians 12. Apostle Paul uh, brings this up. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, it's many pieces, we got many organs and appendages, all that, and all the members of the body, though many, all the different pieces of the body, they're many, but yet there's one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. It's that, it's that unity is what he's getting at. It's what he's referring to. Now, uh, um, believers have a great propensity, don't we? You grew up in the church, you know we got a propensity to emphasize our distinctives, to focus on the stuff that separates, not the stuff that that unites. I want you to, to work with me for just a minute. I want you to think that everybody in here is a close follower of Christ, right? Everybody. Now, I know there are probably some who are kind of checking this out. They're not sure, but just pretend everybody in here is a follower of Christ for a second, if that's true. But as you look around, everybody in here, everybody was once chained to darkness, chained to sin, lost, didn't know it. Everybody in here at one point came to the same exact spiritual aha type of thing that you came to. They came to Christ and they realized that's what it's about. Everybody in here on their knees, tears, gratitude for what he's done for them. Every person in here has God's word as their guide. Every person in here has the indwelling, sealing Holy Spirit. They have stories of how God has led them. Every single person in here, Bible says their citizenship is in heaven. They're strangers and aliens on this earth. Their, their inheritance is in heaven. Same destiny. Every single person, according to scripture, their brother is Jesus. The father is their father. Get this. Every single person in here then has been adopted into the family, which means we are family. That's just not a metaphor. That's not a nice thing. That is a spiritual truth. There is a family that we're in. There, there's other things that unite us and pull us together. And when this new community that Jesus is talking about, that he's, he's building, this scripture is just, it's, it's description of this thing is stellar. Because he says that in this new community, you're to love one another the way, way Father and I love. In this new community, you forgive one another, and you're to carry one another's burdens, and you're to rejoice with one another and weep with one another, and you're to encourage one another. And what he's saying is the spirit that goes on in this new community is to be the exact same spirit that happens within the, the relationship with the Trinity. He's inviting us into that kind of a relationship. That he's inviting us into the inner circle of, of, of God. So that's what it needs to be. That's where it, what it needs to be like. Uh, that kind of a unity. Amazing. Now, now, why does he pray for unity? 
When I was a little boy, we'd be driving down the road, and my mom and dad in the front seat, uh, this was way before seatbelts were required, right? And there was like five of us kids in the back seat, and you know how this goes, long trip. We'd travel from Chicago to Tennessee, and my dad's station wagon, no air conditioning, and we all had our little place of the vinyl seat, and, and you better not cross my line. And But it was, we weren't on the road for 10 minutes before we were all fighting. And I just, my dad is swinging back there trying to drive the car, and the car is swerving, he's swinging, and he's cursing, and he, he's trying to... And, and he's screaming, can I just get some peace and quiet? You know, my dad wanted unity, not because he cared for us, <laughs> but because he cared for his own sanity, right? Because he thought that would be a nice environment because this is going to be a long journey if we don't have unity. This is not why Jesus wants unity, because it's nice, because it's a good thing. That's not why he wants. There's a reason why he wants unity. Let's get, look at verse 21 again. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, he's going to say the same thing. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, completely one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is wild. Jesus knows that the greatest apologetic, the greatest, the greatest tool for effective evangelism is unity. He knows that when the church is one, O-N-E, the world will be one, W-O-N. Now, there's this, this mission of, of Jesus. Jesus is mission-driven, and this whole text, 17, is all about mission. And if you go back to when the angel came to Mary, remember? Started, stated it straight off. He will save his people from their sins. He's on mission. And Jesus comes around, and he says, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And then he called these guys originally, and he didn't say, come follow me, and I'll take you to heaven. No, no, come follow me, and I will make you fish of men. And Jesus is obsessed with this mission completion, mission fulfillment, so much so that the only prayer request Jesus asks of us, he's given us one prayer request, Luke 10. He says this, he says, says, will you pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers? He prays for mission fulfillment, that we would pray for mission fulfillment. He is so much about this that he ties this mission fulfillment to the end times. Matthew 24, 14, he says, this gospel is going to be preached among all nations, and then the end will come. Mission fulfillment is what he's about. But he knows that, that, that when the church is one, the world will be one. But if the church's unity is derailed, what's that do? Well, we look at this and say, well, obviously the, the mission is derailed. Uh, this didn't happen. This is not happening. 1853, a guy by the name of Hudson Taylor, 21 years of age. Hudson gets on a, a boat on his way to China. He feels the call of God in his life for China. 
He gets to China and he realizes, finds out that the missionaries who are there, there are several missionaries, but they're all in the coastal cities on mission compounds. And as he gets to know these guys, they're all dressed in proper British dress and they all have got on their compounds proper tea times and and, and British cultural things going on. And so Hudson says, you know what? There's the vast majority of China's not being reached. And so he dresses like a Chinese he, he puts, gets the pigtail going, as a lot of the Chinamen had, and he enters into the interior of China with the gospel. And, and, and people respond. Hudson Taylor's life inspires thousands of, of Western Christians across all denominational lines, thousands of them to come to, to China to, to sacrifice, to go into the interior with the gospel, and the gospel blossoms. Then Boxer Rebellion kicks in. Mao Zedong follows that, and all the missionaries are either murdered or kicked out of the country. And you say it was kind of a waste. Well, today, if it's a normal day in China, 10,000 people will accept Christ in China today. 10,000 accepted Christ yesterday. 10,000 will accept Christ tomorrow because Hudson knew that when the church is one, the world will be one. In 1885, a guy by the name of A.B. Simpson, he was a Presbyterian pastor, kind of proper, but he, he had a heart for the street people. Problem is his church didn't like street people coming into the church. And so he forms in New York something called the New York uh, Gospel, Gospel Tabernacle. And this, this is, he invites every like-minded person across denominational lines to come and be a part of, of this. And they reach out to the street folk. And, 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 and they're committed to outreach. He forms the very first missionary training school. No one had ever heard of such a thing in New, New York. It's Nyack College. It's still there today. They send their first foreign missionaries a year later into the Congo. Uh, today, the Christian Missionary Alliance is in 81 countries. Thousands and thousands of missionaries ha- have gone. Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ was started in 1951, I think, Bill Bright. He invited people across denominational backgrounds, denominational boundaries to enter in. Campus Crusade Crew today is the largest mission-sending organization in the world with 25,000 active missionaries in 191 countries. And they've got all kinds of stuff going on. But just one of their things. It's called the, the Jesus film. Are you familiar with this? 1976, based on the book of Matthew. It's like pure book of Matthew. And this has been translated into 1,500 languages, shown on every, in every single country in the world. It's said that this, 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 by very conservative numbers, 3 billion unique people have watched the Jesus film, over 500 million professions of Christ from the Jesus film. Uh, crew has has got a uh, online presence, a global media outreach, I think it's called. Um, in 2009 alone, they registered over 10 million professions for Christ on their online ministry alone. When the church is one, the world will be one. 
Well, we can go, there's a gazillion stories along this line. The Wycliffe Bible translators, they knew that these this messages of Matthew and, and Peter, the Gospel of Mark and, and Luke and John, they needed, they needed to get out in people's languages where people could understand the Gospel. And so they invited folk across denominational lines to be a part of this. Well, the Bible's been translated into more languages than anything, by far, than anything else in the history of the world. 670 languages, full Bible. 1,500 more languages, just the New Testament, 1,100 more languages than that, that just portions of the New, New Testament. Now, the, the Gideons International, what they decided they were going to do is take this Bible that's been translated and they were going to distribute it. Two, two copies of Scripture are distributed every second by the Gideons Inter, International that people might read the gospel and grow because they know when the church is one, the God, the, 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 the Christ, the, the, the world will be one because Christ will be glorified. A trans world radio. Uh, this is amazing. Transworld Radio Gospel. We'd think radio's kind of done, right? Well, in some countries it's not. Transworld Radio, uh, just recently, 500,000 downloads in one month coming out of China. The gospel is, is thriving. Now, now we gotta think, the work isn't done. 70,000 die each day without Christ. Still more need to go. But Jesus knows when the, when the, when the church is one, the world is, is one. Satan knows this as well. And so you gotta know this is gonna be his attack. And so let me do this, as you think about Jesus' prayer, we think about that. Where does this, where does this go? How easy it can be, right? To not intentionally, not to mean it, but to be used by hell. To focus on secondary issues and be so blasted, upset about this or that and cause all kinds of... We just need to think, don't we, before we say something, before we gossip, before there's bitterness, before there's some complaining, but before we divide the body. Are we, are we dividing the body? Are we speaking negative because God's word isn't honored? Or because our word's not honored. Are we, are we dividing the body because Jesus isn't getting his way? No, we're not getting our way. That's a huge, huge question. Now, I, some of us can practice some discipline and say, I'm just not opening my mouth. But, but still, it's in our heart. And the bitterness is there and we're not trying to get rid of it. We cannot not communicate. And so still, how about this? Instead of just not using who we are to divide, the words I speak, are they forgiveness? Are they acceptance? Are they welcoming? Are they building? Because we know this isn't just about nice comfort stuff for us. We know that when the church is is, is one, then the world is one. And so there's kind of a big thing going on here. So how do you, you bring about this, this unity? Is it just an issue of, of discipline and diplomacy? Is that what it's about? I don't think so. Uh, verse 24 of chapter 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, think who he's talking to. He just told these guys, he just told Matthew and Peter and John, John that I'm leaving you guys. He's just prayed and they've heard him pray. Don't take them from this earth, Father. Leave them here. And now they hear him say, but one day, I want them to be where I am. I want them to see all the glory of heaven. This had to be so 
encouraging for them. Unity is achieved when we focus on heaven, our eternal reward, our, our, our time with Christ. When we realize this world is not my home, I'm focusing on, on there. Many Christians, you talk to them about heaven today, and it's like the second to last place I don't want to go, right? It's not, I'm not interested in, in, in heaven right now. Mm, I want to soak in all the pleasures of this world that I can and give everything I've got to this. And one day when my body totally crashes, and one day when I can't enjoy the pleasures of earth anymore, then, okay, I guess I'll go to heaven. That's kind of the perspective that you get. When we quit focusing on heaven, we become self-indulgent. We become self-occupied. We become spiritually immature and apathetic. But when we focus on where we're going and and, and the mission that is to be fulfilled to get there, it it shifts. It it changes everything. You know, I wish we had time to get into... uh, Psalm 73, what what a great psalm. The guy starts off, right, focused on on material stuff, this world, and he's bitter and he's ticked off and he's angry because other people got more than he does. But then halfway through, he focuses on heaven. Huge shift, huge shift. Look what he says. After he focuses on heaven, he says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. He's focusing on heaven. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So we focus on our eternal rewards. We focus on unity. Unity. One of the greatest examples of, of this uh, is an illustration I've shared before, I know, comes from John Ortberg. It says he was vacationing with his family on Nantucket Island, Massachusetts. And he came across this small museum, and a museum was set up to honor a volunteer organization that started 300 years ago. And, and 300 years ago, you know, sea travel was pretty dangerous, and especially the coast of Massachusetts, very rocky. Come to find out, lots of lives were lost just a mile from shore. And so the, the, the people on Nantucket Island said, you know, we're tired of this. No longer, not on our watch. And so they, they, they built these little huts along the coast, and in the huts they put a, a rescue boat and some rescue equipment. And they started watching the water, and they were committed to this 24-7. They had a slogan that said, you have to go out, you don't have to come back. And they were committed to saving lives. In the museum there, I guess there's like one of the huts that was there, they have pictures of these people whose lives were saved, People, pictures of people who saved them, and they... they in the, in the stories, they never knew these folk. They just cared for people who were lost. This organization that they founded was initially called the Humane Society. I know we think that's all animals, but they changed the title to the Life Saving Society. All about this. Well, at one point, the government stepped in, and what later would become known as the Coast Guard, they started working side by side with the Life Saving Society. And they would go out and they would, they would save. But then what happened was the life-saving society started thinking this over. And they said, you know, these guys have better equipment than we have. And they're better trained than we are. They can swim better than we can. And, and, and you know, they're paid. And so in time, the life-saving society kind of quit 
doing what they do. They quit caring about lives. The huts went into disrepair. Uh, believe it or not, though, the Life Saving Society still operates today. Oh, they meet once a year for a dinner in Boston, and what they do is they hand out community service awards. They enjoy each other's friendship and fellowship. Um, they, 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 part of community programming, but they're not interested in saving lives anymore. The, the, the slogan, you must go out, you don't have to return, that's just not part of their lives anymore. This doesn't happen overnight, uh, but it can happen. It can happen to a church. A church that starts off as a life-saving society that gets away from it. Still got budgets, still have programs, still have staff, just not doing what they were originally chartered to do. As we think about FAC, if you were to look into our archives, no question about it, hundreds of years ago when this church started, it was, it was a life-saving hut. That was its goal. Where are we today? And, and here, here's, here's whether we are a life-saving station or not is 100% in the hands of every person in this room. When the church is one, the world will be one. Would you pray with me? Because God, I would confess Sometimes I would not mean it to be, of course, but sometimes I probably support hell and divide your body over stupid things. So I pray, Lord, you'd forgive. Would you remind myself, would you remind my brothers and sisters here, Lord, of the oneness that we have in you, you placing us in the body and how it will be completely fulfilled, righteous relationship one day in the meantime, as we struggle and wrestle through, we can grow in our love for one another. Would you remind us, Lord, this is your way of reaching the world. So I would pray for our church, for our lives individually, that we would reflect your will in this regard. Please would that be so, Lord. And God, I would pray too, even as we take up this offering with the money uh, that would be given, be used. We know for us to be a life-saving hut, that's going to affect staff and budgets and everything else. When you use the money, even this week, for that purpose, I would pray that that would be so, oh, oh God. And if it would be um, sought to be spent in some other way, would you convict on the front end, show us. Thank you again, Lord, for giving us the opportunity for supplying in our needs and giving us the opportunity to even support and give part of that back. We pray that you would, in the name of Jesus, in the power of your Holy Spirit, use the money for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.